It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Tuesday, 3rd of January, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. This weekly Greenwich, Connecticut history podcast is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the Gateway to New England. The town of Greenwich was founded on July 18, 1640. Since its humble beginnings, Greenwich, Connecticut has emerged as one of America's most notable and attractive communities. It's a special place that we call home. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as ours do, or whether you're here to stay or just passing through, well, we welcome you with open arms. Like it or not, (laughs) you're a part of our history. Congratulations. I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. The Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Well, my friends, Happy New Year. Here's to making more cherished memories and more cherished history in 2023. Whatever the new year has in store for us, we'll be in it together. Well, we've got a great show for you today, so without any further delay, let's get started. Coming up on today's show. Well, my friends, on Greenwich in the Gilded Age, our journey will take us to Harris Cottage through Matt Bernard's exquisite book, Victorian Summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut. Sited at the bottom of Otterrock Drive, Harris Cottage is not your typical Queen Anne home. Its colorful owners have included such people as Edward Julian Nally, the first president of the Radio Corporation of America, more commonly known as RCA. In December 1919, Judge Frederick A. Hubbard penned a letter to the editors of the Greenwich News and Graphic about a place in the Harbor area called Marble House. I'm going to share details with you about that. Also, Erwin Edwards penned a piece for his column, Greenwich Life as it is and was, regarding various ways Greenwich marked the new year. You'll be interested in hearing that. Also, artist Whitman Bailey published a sketch and a short article on the circa 1792 Zilfar Mead House, which still stands today on Pear Lane, the field point area of Belhaven. The people of Greenwich, Connecticut had various ways to mark both the start of a new year and the end of an old one. Some were quite colorful. They ranged from driving a Harley-Davidson motorcycle up Putts Hill with passengers in January 1914 to ice skating on the frozen pond at Ten Acres, today's Cardinal Stadium at Greenwich High School, a moving picture show in 1908, the Masonic Ball at the Armory of 1927, reflections on business prospects in 1882, dinner parties at the Indian Harbor Yacht Club, music and merriment at the Pickwick Arms Hotel, and so on. I'll have a sampling of details from our very, very rich history. Now, all did not go smoothly in the transition from one year to the other. I hate to say it, but it's true even today. I'll share a few details on probably one of our more popular segments, and that's 
crimes and misdemeanors. A new year marks a new beginning, my friends. Don't let winter's cold get in the way. There's lots to see, lots to do, and lots to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. You've come to the right place to learn about the history of this extraordinary town that we call home. I'm going to have all this and more as our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Make Site Design Associates of Greenwich, Connecticut your choice when it comes to taking your beautiful landscaped property to the next level. An award-winning landscape architecture studio since 1979, Site Design Associates places a high value on a unique multidisciplinary approach to landscape design and development that is second to none. From analysis to construction to maintenance with 35 years of experience, Site Design Associates offers services that are collaborative and visionary with each client's unique style in mind. Offices are located at 777 West Putnam Avenue in Greenwich, Connecticut. Call 203-869-6895 or go online to learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright environmental future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. A special initiative by Site Design Associates, LISI is a community of diverse professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned citizens harnessing the powers of imagination and innovation to achieve the ecological balance and conservation of Long Island Sound for present and future generations. It aims to use modern planning and the implementation of new technologies to conserve Long Island Sound Looking forward to a bright future of effective leadership. To learn more about the Long Island Sound Institute, go online to lisistudy.info or call 203-869-8632. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is a tribute to those Americans who served the nation on the international scene as ambassadors in the American Diplomatic Corps. There has never been a museum specifically dedicated to ambassadors. The museum's founders and supporters are committed to achieving its educational mission with programs and events for high school and college students. My friends, you can learn more by contacting the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, by calling 203-869-8632, write to Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831, or go online at amusa.info. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at His Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595.
Well, Victorian Summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut by Matt Bernard, is an incredible compilation of Belhaven's rich history. Featuring beautiful photos and ephemera, the book is the culmination of decades of work and research, taking its readers to America's golden age. On today's show, we'll visit Harris Cottage. Um, let's see, it's located uh, at 276 Otter Rock Drive, of course, in Belhaven. Um, its principal owner was Thomas Harris, and it was built in 1890. The architect, well, um, his name uh, is unknown, uh, but it was altered in 2010. In 1897, Robert R. Harris, the retired head of Treadwell and Harris, bakers of ship's bread and crackers, vanished from the steamship Pil Pilgrim while en route from Boston to Fall River. A sufferer of nervous prostration, quote-unquote, his death was believed a suicide. Harris left behind, in addition to, uh, to his family, the beautiful Queen Anne house on a 1.72-acre plot that had been bought from the land company in 1890 for $5,400. The house he constructed, sited at the bottom of Otter Rock Drive, had beautiful vistas across the public ground to Long Island Sound. Harris Cottage was not a typical Queen Anne. Its pedimented gables and dentrile trim were classic classical features that harked back to the Greek Revival style popular in the United States from about 1805 to 1855. Of course, the Queen Anne was a magpie style, borrowing design elements from various periods and incorporating them into ornate, richly textured holes. Harris Cottage's more typically Queen Anne elements were the Palladian window in the front gable, the spacious piazza, the projecting bays and recessed balconies, and the three-story tower. Though this tower was faceted instead of round and traded the usual Victorian cap for an Italianate flat top. The house's exterior was a combination of clapboard on the first floor and patterned elaborated fish-scaled shingles on the second and third floors. The shingles were left natural to weather, which was an unusual design element for the time. All in all, this was a Queen Anne of angles rather than curves. The floor plan of the house was typical for the time, for its time. The elaborate massing of the house disguised a relatively small footprint within the structure. One entered a grand open hall with a fireplace that opened to an adjacent stair hall. There was a parlor and dining room. The kitchen and servants' dining room were located on the lower level and were serviced by a butler's pantry. A dumbwaiter brought food up to be served in the dining room. The adjoining carriage house, in a complementary design, had multiple stats and stairs and an apartment on the second floor for staff. A storage barn and conservatory were situated in the rear. Among the house's owners after Harris was Edward Julian Nally, who lived from 1859 to 1953, who bought the house from the Wilfrey estate for $33,750 in 1932. Nally was a pioneering radio executive who went down in history, somewhat unfairly, as a man who missed radio's real significance. In 1915, when Nally was vice president of the American branch of Marconi Wireless Telegraph, he received a message from a young assistant who envisioned the use of radio for news, 
sports, and music broadcasts. Houses would receive the programs via radio music boxes, that is, household radios, which the company itself could manufacture. The young assistant was David Sarnoff, the communications visionary who later headed the conglomerate RCA. At least initially, Nally shrugged off Sarnoff's idea, forgivable, in the climate of the First World War, when great excitement surrounded wireless radio's capacity to alter naval warfare. Indeed, in 1917, the federal government assumed control of all radio patents in order to further the war effort. But Nally did come around. General Electric bought American Marconi in 1919, renamed it Radio Corporation of America, and installed Nally as RCA's first president. Under Nally's auspices, Sarnoff arranged the July 1921 broadcast of the Jack Dempsey-Georges Carpentier prize fight, and wireless communication never looked back. Nally lived in Harris Cottage from 1932 to 1944. In 2006, the house was purchased by a new owner, and a complete restoration and expansion commenced, a sensitive addition that enlarged the ground floor to include a new kitchen and family room was added with an elaborate master bedroom suite above. Sadly, the carriage house that had remained in a state of perfect preservation for generations, with horse stalls intact, was converted to a conventional garage along with an attached pool house to service the addition of a pool at the rear of the property. You're in for a pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good. Located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue, behind the Second Congregational Church, Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to quality, and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. The 1856 Solomon Mead House provides a 19th century style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff. Super-friendly baristas, great coffee, pastries, and more. Coffee for Good provides free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating, with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings. My friends, take it from me. The word about this gem has gotten around. Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places, Coffee for Good is open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org. Well, my friends, Rick Hansen, local history librarian at the Greenwich Library, has announced the Heritage with Hoopla 5 part series. Why not start the new year by delving into your genealogy and family history? Join us as attendees wander through Hoopla's Discovering Your Roots, an introduction to genealogy using the great 
Courses series. The series is free to the public. No registration is required. Seating is limited to 18, and seating is made on a first-come, first-served basis. The first workshop, Ancestors in Ship Passenger Lists, is Wednesday, January 4th, 2023, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the Learning Lab. Learn how to make sense of passenger arrival records, the single most precious document for reconstructing your ancestors' voyage to North America. Using several key guideposts and sources, including colonial land records and immigrant directories, you can uncover facts about arrivals from colonial days through the 1950s. The second workshop, Ancestors in Naturalization Records, will be held on Wednesday, January 11th, 2023, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the Learning Lab. Did your immigrant ancestors become U.S. citizens? Did they procrastinate or not naturalize at all? Dr. Collada reveals how naturalization records can answer these and other biographical questions. You'll focus on adapting your research to three major naturalization periods prior to 1790, 1790 to 1906, and 1906 to today. The next workshop, the Genealogical Proof Standard will be held on Wednesday, January 18th, 2023, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the Learning Lab. Strengthen your skills as a family history detective in this in-depth look at the Genealogical Proof Standard, the five-step process that certified genealogists use for proving ancestral identities, relationships, life events, and other biographical details. Then, wrap up the lecture with a fascinating look at the nature of evidence. The next workshop is Ancestors in the County Courthouse that will be held on Wednesday, January 25th, 2023, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the Learning Lab. Discover how to work your way through the courthouse records of the county where your ancestors resided. Using the two most common types of courts, circuit and chancery, you'll examine how to read courthouse materials, including probate packets, vital records, tax rolls, and even colonial-era records such as indentures and apprenticeships. And the final workshop will be held on February 1st, 2023, and that one is Ancestors and State Records. Now again, that will be on Wednesday, February 1st, 2023, from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the Learning Lab. Good genealogists always take advantage of local sources outside the courthouse as well, including state archives, which hold records that resulted in the administration of state laws. Here, you'll learn how to tap into the information found in original sources, such as census and military records, and derivative sources, including maps and newspapers. As with all workshops, please arrive early as the program will start right on time. Each week, attendees will watch a 30-minute genealogy video in Hoopla, followed by a discussion and practice of the techniques learned. Participants and attendees are asked, please, to bring your Greenwich Library card and PIN to access Hoopla. Program Contact, uh, contact is Carla Sherman at 203-625-6560 or Rick Hansen at 203-622-7948. Again, this is the Heritage with Hoopla series at the Greenwich Library. Attendees will wander through Hoopla's Discovering Your Roots, an introduction to genealogy using the Great Source series. This is free and open to the public. There is no res- registration required. You are encouraged to come to all of the of the workshops. And again, uh, it is always first come, first served. 
Engaging Ideas with historian Dr. Ashley Farmer is an online event at the Greenwich Library open to the public on Wednesday, January 11, 2023, from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Farmer discusses her research of black women's intellectual history, including research strategies and primary source databases. Greenwich Library subscribes to ProQuest's historical black newspaper collection, offering essential primary source content and editorial perspectives of the most distinguished African-American newspapers in the United States. Dr. Ashley D. Farmer is a historian of black women's history, intellectual history, and radical politics. She is currently an associate professor in the departments of history and African diaspora studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Her book, Remaking Black Power, How Black Women Transformed an Era, is the first comprehensive study of black women's intellectual production and activism in the black power era. She is also the co-editor of New Perspectives on the Black Intellectual Tradition, an anthology that examines central themes within the Black Intellectual Tradition. Her next book, Queen Mother Audley Moore, Mother of Black Nationalism, which is forthcoming from the University of North Carolina Press, will be the first biography of one of the most influential yet understudied activists and thinkers of the 20th century. Farmer earned a Bachelor of Arts degree from Spelman College, a Master of Arts in History, and a PhD in African American Studies from Harvard University. Dr. Farmer lives in Austin, Texas. The event URL will be sent via registration email. There are 39 slots available. Now, for more information, my friends, please visit GreenwichLibrary.org. The program contact is Rick Hansen. He is the local uh, Greenwich, uh, Greenwich Library local history historian, uh, or librarian, rather, sorry. <laughs> and um, his contact uh, phone number is 203-622-7948. You can also reach him by email at r. Hansen, that's R-H-A-N-S-E-N, at GreenwichLibrary.org. If we were back in, say, New Year's 1903, we might have been outside ice skating. In centuries past, there was a farm in Greenwich called Ten Acres. It was an ancestral Mead family farm for generations, It has changed quite a bit since it was acquired by the town for use as the campus of the new high school. The pond that was on the property is now where Cardinal Stadium is today. Now, some of you may remember the Ebenezer Mead House that was on the property. It was moved in 1976 to Salem Street in Coscob, and today that house serves as the headquarters for Kids in Crisis. At one time, my ancestors would flood the area where Cardinal Stadium is today, allowing the waters to freeze and to use the area to harvest ice for the town's households for use in ice boxes. Ever wonder where the term ice box came from? Well, <laughs> there's a hint for you. The frozen pond also furnished Greenwich's people with one of the best settings for ice skating. The following comes from the Greenwich Graphic. This was published on Saturday, January 3rd, 1903 on the front page. And it goes as follows. Tainakers is flocked with skaters. Merrily the skate clink as someone goes whizzing by. The bright steel glimmers in the afternoon sunlight. It is New Year's Day, and 500 souls are merry as they softly fly over the icy surface. Hardly a safe on the pond, which is not dotted with skaters. 
The old winter sport is on. Everyone is enjoying it to the utmost. Here and there will be seen a trio coming along in a row. Swiftly, a single flyer dashes past. There's a couple with hands clasped come gracefully up, pausing for a moment to make a turn, then gliding away to some other part of the pond. In and out among these go the skaters in another direction. Not a moment is lost. It is a grand panorama. The eye first feasts itself upon one happy group and then another as each goes by. The bright coats of the ladies catch the eye. Now it is red, now blue. Sweaters are much in evidence. Here comes a white one, and the graceful outline of the girl's figure is seen for a moment. Next comes a red, and from another direction, one of brown. The variation brings rest to the eye. Bright hats are everywhere to be seen. Jauntily, they sit upon the heads of the fair wearers. How well the colors harmonize. What a picture for an artist to paint. The rosy color of the fair one's cheeks is heightened by the exhilarating exercise. Here comes a couple. It is worthwhile to m watch them a moment. See how their blades move together. The same ray of light strikes one and the other. The flesh comes together. The man's strength tells in that stride, but his fair partner is no hindrance. Away they go with a short glide and then to a catch step which sends them away, out to the side. Off they go again on the other tack. Now a single skater goes sailing by with hands clasped behind his back. Off in a distance, some of the more inexperienced skaters are hovering about the shore, skating back and forth in the hope that no one will notice their poorer efforts. In the enclosure at the lower part of the pond, two teams are playing the king of ice skating games, hockey. They are very much in earnest, as their shouts of, Here it is! Pass it here! And other terms familiar to the sport would prove. Here and there, on other parts of the pond, a match game is on, and the same earnest spirit is shown. Now and then, someone gets a fall, but quickly rising is away again. Occasionally, a skate comes off, and the disgusted skater wanders to some secluded spot to put it back on again. A fancy skater is doing his stunts, quote-unquote, and an interested group looks on. Then the group breaks up. Everyone goes where fancy leads him. The bank of earth which crosses the northern side of the pond is covered with weary ones in groups or alone. No one stays there longer than is necessary for rest. Carriages come to the edge of the pond to bring fresh skaters or to carry others home. A car goes by and another crowd is dumped at the lower end. The car going the other way carries back those weary with the sport. Coming or going, skating or resting, all are happy. All are beginning a happy new year. You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New 
England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. In Greenwich's 20th century history, there is an artist and writer who stands out. His name was Whitman Bailey. If you go in some of the old newspapers that were published uh, in Greenwich, Connecticut, uh, you will find examples of his sketches as well as short articles on the history of various aspects of Greenwich, Connecticut. The one that I'm going to share with you today was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic on Monday, December 31st, 1928. And it is about the historic Mead family homestead at Field Point Park. Um, This house, of course, still stands today. It's the Zophar Mead House. It was built in 1792. It exists uh, today on uh, Pear Lane. Um, I think it's probably one of the best preserved of the old homesteads of the uh, the Mead family in in Greenwich today. And um, it is a designated landmark uh, by the Greenwich Historical Society. So um, we have this on the uh, the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons.blogspot.com website. You're invited to go and to look at it. And in the meantime, I'd like you to just follow along if you would. And I'm going to read to you what Mr. Whitman Bailey had to say about this house. It goes as follows. Quote, there are hermit souls that live withdrawn in a piece of their self-content. There are souls like stars that dwell apart in a fearless firmament. There are pioneer souls that blaze their paths where highways never ran, but let me live by the side of the road and be a friend to man. That's a nice poem. (laughs) I don't know if he composed that himself or not, but um, there it is. Anyway, the article goes as follows. Casting its angular shadows across the roadway of our present Field Point Park is an old homestead commonly known as the Oliver Mead House. It was built in 1792 by Abraham Mead, a former officer of the Revolutionary War. The house has been handed down through several generations, but is still in the possession of a close relative of this well-known family. Oliver D. Mead, a cousin of the late Oliver, has the same fondness for the old house as had its former owners, so that the place is well kept up and the surrounding gardens have the same dignified and simple charm of a century ago. Strange as it may seem, Abraham Mead, its builder, spent very little time in the homestead, for his son, Zophar Mead, took possession of the house soon after its completion, and many of his treasured personal belongings are still there today. It is, an, it is interesting to learn of the life of Cap- Captain Abraham Mead. He was born in 1742, and at an early age, he learned the potter's trade at a pottery which was run by a Dutchman on the westerly side of Indian Harbor. Abraham had a knack, apparently, for he soon became a partner of the modest firm, and later, as owner, he succeeded to the Dutchman. Captain Meade's early military training he secured in the militia, and at the May session of the legislature in 1774, he was commissioned captain 
of the middle company or train band as the town of Greenwich. Immediately after the Lexington alarm in April 1775, troops were raised for the protection of New York and Captain Meade of the Horseneck 9th Regiment with part of his company was ordered to respond and to assist in the defense. In 1776, he was detailed to command the 4th Company of the 1st Battalion Wadsworth Brigade to reinforce General Washington. He was also among the 4,000 men under General Putnam who were left as a rear guard during the retreat from New York, a retreat carrying on while General Washington took a, a question on, on Harlem Heights. As an example of early American architecture, the house of Captain Meade is one of the best still standing in Greenwich. Like the Putnam Cottage, it should be preserved for from both the historical and architectural standpoint, it lends tradition as well as charm to the background of our town. Signed, Whitman Bailey. And that was published on December 31st, 1928 in the Greenwich News and Graphic. Greenwich Life as it is and was was a column that appeared in the Greenwich News and Graphic by Erwin Edwards. Now, um, this one is dated December 29th, 1922, so just about um, 100 years ago. And the banner, the title is Other New Year's Days. And the article goes as follows. New Year's Day celebration nowadays is not like the New Year's Day observance in Greenwich two score of years ago or less in many ways. There are more Happy New Year quote-unquote wishes than there were then, of course, because Greenwich now has so many more inhabitants to wish one another a Happy New Year than there were in those days. The population now must be nearly, if not quite, 25,000 more inhabitants than many thriving cities in every state of the Union contains, while in the old days referred to there were only from 5,000 to 10,000 inhabitants. Quite a difference, and the figures show how Greenwich is growing. A century ago, and perhaps later, Greenwich had more inhabitants than Bridgeport, and it was not until large manufacturing plants were located in Bridgeport that there were more inhabitants living there than there were residing in Greenwich. Those unfamiliar with the formation of the government of Connecticut who are interested in state politics often express surprise that many of the small cities and towns of the state should have just as many members of the House of Representatives of the state legislature as the large cities with populations at 100,000 or more, and say that it seems unfair, and it is similar to taxation without representation, quote-unquote. The comparison of Greenwich and Bridgeport explains the situation. When the Constitution was adopted, every town was allowed two representatives, the town then being more equal in population, but as the years have gone by and the New Year's days have come, some of the towns have shown great increase in population while others have increased but little, and some have decreased. The number of representatives in the smaller towns could not have been reduced without a vigorous protest, and could not have increased in the larger cities without having so many representatives as to make that branch of the state legislature unwieldy. 
And so, not many years ago, an amendment was passed to the Constitution allowing all new towns below a certain number of inhabitants but one representative, with an increase of one based on population, but no town to have more than two representatives. This week, two new Greenwich representatives will start the new year with the incoming legislature, having new laws and revising or repealing old statutes for the people of the state. Doubtless, many bills will come before the legislature relating to Greenwich affairs, and it is reported that the Greenwich League of Women Voters will have one of their members in Hartford on days when the legislature is in session to, quote-unquote, keep tabs on what is going on. Nothing has been heard about Greenwich applying for a charter to be incorporated as a city, and probably nothing will be done about the matter at the present session of the legislature. But many more New Year's will not have come round before some action should be taken to have Greenwich become a city, or some changes be made in the borough charter to meet the needs of the now rapidly increasing population. It used to be said years ago that on Thanksgiving Day, the brothers and sisters, wives, sweethearts, cousins, and aunts came to the old homes in Greenwich for family gatherings, and on Christmas and New Year's Days, Greenwich folks went to New York to visit their relatives or for entertainment at pleasure resorts. They did not go to take the big city on New Year's Eve to take part in the confusion of ushering in the new year, and there was no noise, ringing of bells, or blowing of horns in Greenwich on New Year's Eve in those days. There were watch night services in several of the churches, as there are at present time, with a large attendance of the devout people who welcomed the incoming year with prayers and hymns of praise. But New Year's Day was a great day for quote-unquote calling in Greenwich, Every family was at home, kept open house, and a well-spread table of inviting eatables and plenty of drinkables that would cheer and inebriate. The inebriate part of the spread is what made a lot of trouble and really what was the reason that New Year's calling was given up. The young men of Greenwich, in full dress suits, if they had them, or in their Sunday best, in companies called at the several families sometimes, though not even acquaintances of the families, and in the cheery Happy New Year, quote-unquote, as they were invited in, wished the host and hostess all the felicities of the season, and then partook of the refreshments, usually the liquid refreshments which consisted of wine, eggnog, Tom and Jerry, quote-unquote, hard cider, and champagne, according to the wealth of the family. By the time they had called at only a few of the homes, they were pretty hilarious, and it wasn't long before they had to go home and go to bed, and the next morning they had such heads as compelled them to go to the drug stores for relief. This feature of the new year aroused much severe criticism among many of the residents, and they uttered such vigorous protests against it that New Year's calling in general was given up. Now, there are very few New Year's callings made, and these only in a quiet way among close friends.
Life and Art, the Greenwich Paintings of John Henry Twachman at the Greenwich Historical Society on October 19th, 2022, and it would be closing on January 22nd, 2023. My friends, this long-awaited exhibition of artworks by American Impressionist painter John Henry Twachman, who lived from 1853 to 1902, presents a new view into the artist's life and home in Greenwich, where he lived with his family from 1890 to 1899. The exhibition, curated by art historian and Twachman scholar Lisa N. Peters, PhD, features artworks on loan from museum and private collections across the country, offering a unique glimpse into the artworks Twachman made, which depict his Greenwich home and his distinctive environs and the way the artist shaped the land to meet his artistic needs. Afternoon in the reading room, Twachman, in his own words, will be held on Sunday, January 8th, 2023, from 2 until 4 p.m. Join Greenwich Historical Society archives and curatorial staff for an afternoon in the library and archives reading room, delving deeper into the words and life of painter John Henry Twachman and exploring his ties to the Holly family in Koskob. My friends, to learn more about life and art, the Greenwich paintings of John Henry Twachman, please go online to GreenwichHistory.org. My friends, I have something uh, to share with you that I think is one of the most novel things from our history. Uh, It happened uh, on January 1st, or around that time, 1914, here in Greenwich, and um, I'll just simply share this with you. I think this would have been a lot of fun to see and even participate in, so um, you be the judge. And uh, it goes as follows. The the headline on this, again, this is from the, uh, the Greenwich News uh, that was published on January 2nd, 1914. And the uh, headline is Novel Test Tomorrow, which would be January 3rd. George Barnes to take man and woman on his motorcycle up Putts Hill. Now, on the face of it, uh, if we look at uh, that incline that goes up from uh, you know Hillside Road, uh, where the high school is, um, up um, East Putnam Avenue to, uh, to Putts Hill, um, it, it looks you know, like nothing to us um, in the early 21st century. But I have to tell you, Walt, that that uh, was not always the case. Uh, that incline that goes past uh, Cardinal Stadium, um, in fact, is uh, rather new if um, if you look at it in a historical uh, perspective. The incline that uh, went uh, originally in that area was actually quite treacherous. Um, and, um, and so um, that makes this all the more important to, um, to mention. The article goes as follows. A novel test is to be given by George Barnes at three o'clock next tomorrow afternoon, and it is probable that a large number of people will be on hand to witness it. Mr. Barnes agrees to take two persons besides himself on his new Harley-Davidson two-speed two-cylinder motorcycle and from a standing start Bring them all up hill, the steepest grade in town, without a bit of difficulty or hesitation. One of the passengers is to be a lady, and the other will be a man. Mr. Barnes will have one in a side saddle and the other on a saddle behind him. There are many who are willing to bet that he can't make it, but Mr. Barnes is so sure of success that he doesn't care how much of a crowd gathers to witness the feat. Mr. Barnes has become the agent for the Harley-Davidson motorcycles and motorcycle trucks. He claims the new two-speed feature of the motorcycle has 
them all beaten for practical purposes. He is willing to demonstrate the machine to anyone at any time. The company makes six models besides the motorcycle truck, ranging in price from $200 to $285, with $425 for the price of the truck. And again, that uh, that uh, comes from the Greenwich News, and that was published on uh, January 2nd, 1914. In the next, po- next podcast, um, I will let you know how things went, assuming that it's reported, uh, and um, we'll see what happens. I have to admit, I have never been on a motorcycle, and um, although I have had offers over the years, could you imagine going on a motorcycle ride for the first time under these kind of um, circumstances? It's one thing, given the steepness of uh, what Putt Hill had at the time, but imagine doing it in the very cold weather that um, that we've been experiencing lately. So um, stay tuned, and I'll let you know what I find, if I find anything at all. The following was uh, published on January 3rd, 1908 in the Greenwich News. I thought I would share this uh, with you. It's on the editorial page, and uh, it goes as follows. By this time, you have made all your New Year's resolutions, and unless it is different this year than any other, a good many of you have broken some of them. Funny how a man will wait a whole month before, or perhaps before giving up a habit in order to start in with the first of the year, and then how he will find that the habit is just as hard to forswear in 1908 as it was in 1907. But New Year resolutions are a good thing. They never did anyone any harm and have accomplished a good deal on the credit side of the page. It is not a bad idea for a man to sit down and look over his life carefully at least once a year. If he does, he will find that he is carrying along a whole lot of useless track, um, as it were. Uh, He was... uh, He was a hundred little habits, little extravagances, which hung around him and prevent his progress, like barnacles and seaweed on a ship's bottom. Every once in a while, the ship has to go into dry dock and get scraped, and every once in a while, a man ought to scrape the needless underling things of his life. Well, there's some truth in that. (laughs) Anyway, the, the, the article continues. Every New Year, uh, every man should sit down and have a good accounting with himself. In the first place, he should try to discover just what thing in all the world he most wants, and the, the one thing that is worth all his efforts. After having discovered that he should try to figure out just the things he must do and the things that he must not do in order to get that. Go back over the last year and see what interfered with your success. Find out all the things that hampered hampered you. Then be sure that you care less for those things than than you do for the attaining of the one thing which you have decided is worth having. Finally, cross the useless things from your life and substitute the useful ones. Of course, it will look a, a good sight earlier, uh, easier on, on paper, that is, than it will be to, to live it. There will be times when you can't remember just why you decided to do one thing and not to do a certain other thing. On that account, it would not be a bad idea for some people to write just the reasons why they wish to drop certain things, then later read them. It will clear the matter up and put one again in the same mood as when the resolution was made. Every man is a law unto himself. But for many people, it is a poor idea to 
take vows and to do or not to do certain things. These vows are generally made in an abnormal state of mind, remorsefulness, for instance, and when you go again in your normal state of mind, you find it almost impossible to live up to the thing that you have said. And if you, quote-unquote, fall down, you lose a large degree of your self-confidence. In making New Year's resolutions, just coolly and in your ordinary frame of mind decide what you want. After that, try to keep uh, before your mind the fact that you want it and why. Then it won't be so hard. If you break your resolutions in a short time, don't get discouraged. Start it again. If necessary, make every day a new year. Keep at it. If you have already fallen down, begin the year, the year over again tomorrow. Well, I have to admit that's the kind of advice that we often hear um, this time of, of year, even in the early 21st century. Uh, so again, that was uh, published in the Greenwich News on January 3rd, 1908. Well, the Greenwich News and Graphic uh, came out with the uh, news on Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1926, about upcoming New Year's festivities in Greenwich, Connecticut. And the article goes as follows. The ushering in of the new year will be observed here at the clubs, hotels, and in the home of private individuals. At the Round Hill Club, more than 400 members and guests attend a dinner and supper dance on New Year's Eve. It will be a fancy dress affair, and many unique and beautiful as well as grotesque costumes will be worn by the dancers. There have been over 100 reservations for dinner, and about 150 have taken tables for the supper. The usual noisemakers, favors, and streamers will enliven the occasion. On the same evening, a dinner dance will take place at the Pickwick Arms, where a special menu will be served, and from a large number of reservations received, there promises to be a record crowd in attendance. There will be many attractive features during the evening, and those attending will celebrate the beginning of the new year after midnight in a jovial manner. A tea dance will be held at the Field Club on New Year's afternoon, when the members of the club will make merry and attend a lar in large numbers. Many will bring guests, and the young people who are home from colleges and schools for the Yuletide season are expected to be present in large numbers. Plans have been completed for a New Year's Eve dance in the auditorium of the Masonic Temple, under the auspices of the Masonic Club and the Greenwich Chapter of OES. There will be entertainers from New York and Hartford, and supper will be served at 11 p.m. The committee of the two orders in charge of the dance are Dr. R.G. Collins, Chairman, Gordon McNicole, and Leonard S. Clark, also, Mrs. Mary T. Rydell, Mrs. George E. Brush, and Mrs. R. G. Collins. Next Monday evening, a holiday dance will be given by the Greenwich High School Alumni Association in the high school gymnasium. Carlton Bain, chairman of the committee, will be assisted by Ms. Irene Sweeney, Ms. M. Elizabeth Crichton, Ms. Bertha A. Bowles, and Cornelius Enright. On Tuesday evening, December 28th, the Greenwich Athletic Association will hold a dance at the YWCA. Another big social event will be a supper dance to be given by the Stamford chapter of the College of New Rochelle for Girls at the Pickwick Arms on Monday evening, December 27th. The proceeds will go to the building fund for the school. The chairman of the committee is Miss Margaret St. John and her assistants are Miss 
Dorothy or, or Miss Margaret Dilworth and Miss Dorothy Manuel. It is expected that many of the alumni and students of the college will attend, as well as a number of the younger set from Greenwich and nearby towns. The junior members of the field club held a successful dance at the clubhouse on Tuesday evening. Back in 1908, there was a report that nearly 600 people attended the quote-unquote high-class moving picture show given New Year night at the town hall under the auspices of the United Workers. It was generally conceded to have been the best moving picture show ever given in this town. The entertainment was uh, relieved by solos, uh, by a prominent singer, and by good instrumental music. Motion pictures are common enough, but those of the character displayed in that entertainment are rare about here. They were produced by Mr. Herrick, proprietor of the Stamford Family Theater, and it is hoped that he will put uh, some other shows on in Greenwich. Well, in 1914, uh, a number of events were held in Greenwich. Um, One of them uh, was, well, this is very interesting, Italian Society Dances. About 75 Italian people attended the dance at the town hall yesterday afternoon, that would have been January 1st, 1914, and enjoyed the holiday dance very much. The dancing began at 3 o'clock and lasted until 6. Music was furnished by Mulrivi's orchestra. It had been intended to bar the animal dances, (laughs) but the young Italian people proved that they could dance the new dances without a suggestion of anything improper and were allowed to dance the turkey trot, tango, bunny hug, (laughs) and all the others. The dance was under the auspices of the Italo-American Political Club. Well, my congratulations um, to them. Um, Also, the usual custom of keeping open house and holding a reception was observed by the Putnam Hill chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution at Putnam Cottage on New Year's Day. That would have been the day before this article appeared. Mrs. Henry M. Hitchcock, the regent, and Miss Lillian Hitchcock received, and Mrs. Louise Mead, Ella Mead, and Ruth Duff poured tea. Music was furnished by a Victrola, about 40 people attended. And in one of the biggest and most pleasant events of the season and the first social event of the new year was the dinner dance and supper given by Mr. and Mrs. William Hogson at the Indian Harbor Yacht Club last evening. Dinner was served at 7 o'clock in the dining room, which was prettily, prettily, decorated with flowers. 22 guests sat down to a fine dinner served by Stuart Emil Newman. Over 40 more guests arrived for the dancing, and then there were over 60 to partake uh, of the supper at 12 o'clock. The music was furnished by Europe. The ballroom was attractively decorated with palms. On December 31st, that would be New Year's Eve, 1919, a field club watch night was held, of course, at the Greenwich Field Club, which is located off of um, Lake Avenue. The headline on this says, Masquerade Ball and Supper Lasting All Night, and it goes as follows. A large and brilliant society event was a masquerade ball held at the field club Wednesday night, which was attended by about 150 of the members and their friends. The ballroom was decorated with Christmas greens and candles. Souvenirs consisting of horns and ballroom uh, balloons sorry, were presented to the women. 
Those credited with the best and prettiest costumes were Charles Ingram, who impersonated a Mexican, and Mrs. Colby M. Chester Jr., daughter-in-law of Rear Admiral Colby M. Chester, attired as a Japanese. At 12 o'clock, the room was darkened and all joined in singing America and the Star-Spangled Banner, after which horns were blown and cheers resounded throughout the clubhouse. There was only one light in the room, this being in front of the big clock. A supper dance followed, which was enjoyed until six o'clock in the morning. Muller's Metropolitan Orchestra played for the dancing. Now, at this Field Club Watch Night uh, event, uh, there are a list of prominent people that were um, that were in attendance. I'm I'm going to read this. It's not too long, but uh, there are some people that um, that might ring a bell with a number of you. So, among those present were Mrs. Marjorie Post Close, Captain Edwin B. Close, William G. Rockefeller, Percy A. Rockefeller, Godfrey Stillman Rockefeller, Mr. and Mrs. F. W. Lincoln, Mr. and Mrs. Clement Cleveland, Jr., Mr. and Mrs. Colby M. Chester, Jr., Mr. and Mrs. Edwin N. Chapman, Mr. and Mrs. Marshall C. Bacon, R. G. Robinson, Mrs. Walter Bennett, Mrs. Hamilton Todd, Mr. and Mrs. A. L. Ferguson, Mr. and Mrs. H. Ashton Crosby, Crosby, sorry, and Mr. and Mrs. R. G. Coburn. How many of you were aware that roughly a hundred years ago, the grocery store chain known as the Piggly Wiggly had a store on Greenwich Avenue. They opened up shop here. It's true, as it turns out. <laughs> Um, I looked up where the address would be today, and um, it would be uh, on Greenwich Avenue where the Lululemon store is located, and and that's on the eastern side of uh, Greenwich Avenue between uh, Lewis Street and um, and East Elm Street. Piggly Wiggly was founded on September 6, 1916, not in Greenwich, Connecticut, but in Memphis, Tennessee, by Clarence Saunders. As I mentioned, it once had a store on Greenwich Avenue. Um, today, that uh, the Piggly Wiggly um, is headquartered in Keene, New Hampshire, and it's owned today by CNS Wholesale Grocers. The, by the way, the origin of the um, of the name Piggly Wiggly remains a mystery, but they took out a very, very large ad in the local press um, a century ago. Uh, and um, I'd like to read this to you. The headline on this is The Old and the New Year. Looking back, we see many things that we could have done better, says the Piggly Wiggly, but we take pleasure and pride in the fact that since the opening of Greenwich's Piggly Wiggly store in September of 1922, Grocery prices in Greenwich have been reduced by a very considerable margin. We take further pleasure and pride in the very evident appreciation of what our store has done to reduce the prices of foodstuffs, as demonstrated by the buying support that has been accorded our store by the residents of Greenwich and vicinity. To these, we wish to express our thanks for their patronage, which has resulted in a saving in living expenses to them, and notwithstanding low prices, in a very satisfactory margin of net profit to our store. Looking forward, we are confident of the continued buying support of those who have been our customers in the past year, and we feel that that it is only logical to believe that to our present list of valued customers will be added in the coming year. Many more who may not yet have noticed the reason why their grocery expenses have not been as high during 
the last months of 1922 as they were in previous similar periods. We are entering the new year, determined that whatever support we deserved in 1922, we shall endeavor more earnestly to deserve each day of 1923. We wish to all for the new year health and happiness, and that comes from the Piggly Wiggly store that used to exist on Greenwich Avenue. You know, I thought that while I have this ad in front of me, I would read um, some of the prices uh, of um, of items that they um, that they have uh, for sale, especially since, of course, we are living presently in inflationary times, and um, there are plenty of you out there that are uh, none too pleased with uh, the um, the price of groceries uh, these days. Now, of course, this is um, 1922 going into 1923, so uh, let's see. Um, Sunlight finest creamery butter. The taste tells. It says. A one-pound uh, print uh, divided in quarters that went for 53 cents. Oakland Farm eggs, uh, a dozen of those, went for 41 cents. Uh, you could get Monroe Extra Sweetened Tender Peas, uh, two cans for 15 cents. Um, and let's see, full cream cheese. I like that on my bagels. Maybe you do too. A pound of full cream cheese would go for 31 cents. Maxwell House or Astor Coffee, a pound of that went for 39 cents. What else can we um, find here? Let's see. Oh, Premier Salad Dressing. I like dressing on my salad. Maybe you do too. A large bottle went for uh, 31 cents. Um, let's see. What else? Oh, Sun-Made Seeded Raisins. Of course, those still exist today, don't they? Um, a package of those went for uh, 15 cents. Quaker Oats. Um, you know, especially on um, in, in the colder months that we're in right now, I like to have... Uh, you know, a little bit of oatmeal in the um, morning, nice and warm. Quaker Oats, a package of that went for 10 cents. And Cream of Wheat, a package of that went for um, 22 cents. Let's see, R&R Chicken Broth in a cam went for 11 cents. And Overland Alaska Salmon, a pound can, uh, went for 12 and a half cents. Well, there you go. And then Premier Columbia River Salmon, a half pound can, went uh, for 45 cents. Again, that comes from the Piggly Wiggly, um, Fairfield Incorporated, the owners. And um, there was a store on 151 Greenwich Avenue here in Greenwich, Connecticut. There also was one for our listeners over in Stamford. That was over on 440 Main Street. So there you go. Maybe we can bring back the Piggly Wiggly. Would you shop there if it was on Greenwich Avenue? I don't know. It might be a novel experience, but, uh, but there you are. This was reported on Friday, January 5th, 1923. Lester West, son of Mr. and Mrs. Charles West of Riverside, who is associated with the real estate office of Neil Morrow Lab, seems to have a jinx following him into the new year. Some two weeks ago, while driving his car east on the Boston Post Road at Riverside Avenue, Another machine going in the same direction attempted to pass him on the right as he was about to make the turn into Riverside Avenue and a crash resulted. His car, which was damaged to the extent of about $200, was repaired at a local garage and had just been turned over to him. On Sunday evening, while traveling along Putnam Avenue, Port Chester, about 7 o'clock, the front of the car suddenly burst into flames, which spread with such rapidity that Mr. West narrowly escaped being seriously burned 
as the curtains were fastened on the car and he was obliged to rip down a back curtain and crawl through an, crawl through an opening. There was a high wind blowing at the time which fanned the flames. A telephone message was received at Fire Headquarters, Portchester, and the Reliance Chemical made a quick run to Putnam Avenue but could do nothing to save the car, which was totally destroyed. Nothing of any value was left aside from the engine. Mr. West agrees with his friends that it was a pretty poor way to start the new year. Well, we concur with that even today in the early years of the 21st century. Well, before we close out uh, today's show, the first of the year 2023, we have to, of course, uh, have one of our more popular uh, features of the show, and that would be crimes and misdemeanors. Um, <laughs> it's self-evident, um, even today, but also back in the day, that um, things did not always uh, go uh, lawfully for um, for certain people, and uh, we do this as a um, continuing celebration of the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department, which was last year. This one is titled Christmas Drunks. <laughs> this is uh, this was printed in the Greenwich News and Graphic on Friday, December 31st, 1926. Um, the headline is John Barleycorn had evidently been doing Santa Claus's work. What does that mean? Well, follow along and I'll tell you. Kenneth and Harold Sperry of Forestport, New York, who came to Greenwich to visit relatives on Christmas Day, imbibed too freely on holiday spirits in celebrating the festive season. Kenneth, who is 17 years of age, was operating a car on East Elm Street, while Harold, who was riding with him, was intoxicated. The car had figured in an accident and went through a hedge after leaving the highway. Officer James Lipset investigated and placed the two men under arrest. While Kenneth had been drinking, he was not as much under the weather as Harold. On Monday morning, Judge Meade uh, imposed a fine of $25 in costs upon Kenneth Sperry for reckless driving and rolled the case, uh, annulled the case against Harold Sperry upon the payment of costs, he being charged with intoxication. And another story, Lee Goodson had too much good cheer on Christmas Day, where the Goodson, who takes care of furnaces for various persons, had been making his usual rounds and inhaled too much cold gas fumes, or was treated to some real Christmas whiskey was a question, but at any rate, he was picked up by Officer Timothy Daly on Church Street, who was of the opinion that it was too much quote-unquote booze, rather than gas, which brought about his then rather helpless condition. Since he had been celebrating the holiday, Judge Meade was inclined to be lenient Monday morning and nulled the case upon payment of costs. The case against John Puck, charged with reckless driving, was discharged, and Michael Wasso, charged with the same offense, was nulled on the payment of costs. The case against Jerry DeLeo, charged with a reckless driving, was adjourned for the week. All of the above figured in accidents with other cars. Another case adjourned for the week was that of Raymond Chatfield, represented by Judge William N. Tierney. Chatfield's car was in a collision with a machine driven by Milton Jagger of Greenwich on December 21st at 5.55 p.m. The accident happened at Putts Hill. Chatfield is a driver for the Woodland Transportation Company of New Haven. 
And finally, out of respect to the memory of the late Sergeant James H. Fitzroy of the Greenwich Police Department, Judge Mead adjourned court until Wednesday morning, the day following the funeral. This request was made by prosecuting attorney Henry B. White, who explained that if any important matters came up, they would be disposed of in chambers. Thank you, my friends, for tuning in to the Tuesday, 3rd of January, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. This weekly podcast is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm glad that you could be with us today. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. The town of Greenwich, Connecticut stands today as one of America's most notable and attractive communities. It's a special place that we call home, and it has a very, very special history. The Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, listeners like you everywhere. Contact me anytime at Greenwich and Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. Learn more about the show and listen to past shows by going to Greenwich, a town for all seasons. Blogspot.com. Our next show is scheduled for next Tuesday, the 10th of January, year 2023. I'm grateful to you, all of you, for your interest and enthusiasm for celebrating Greenwich, Connecticut's history. I wish you all a very happy new year, and I'll see you next week. Bye bye now.